Welcome to the Browser Podcast, Writers We Admire, in which I talk to writers we admire. I'm Robert Cottrell, editor of the Browser. I'm talking today with Stephen Dubner, writer, broadcaster, and co-founder of the Freakonomics Phenomenon, which now comprises books, lectures, journalism, and podcasts. Stephen, thank you so much for finding the time. Thank you. As you know, I love the browser. Let me ask you first about the origins of Freakonomics. To me, it was like an overnight success. It was like you suddenly invented a franchise and you owned a genre. But I guess there was more to it than that. <laughs> well, it certainly didn't. There was no intention to do any of those grand things, um, although I'm very pleased with the way it worked out. A lot of success in life I've learned. I guess I knew before then, but I've learned is luck and being in the right place at the right time. And then, and then there's also that first mover advantage or maybe the the size advantage. Once something becomes a little bit successful, it's a lot easier to go from a little bit successful to very than it is to go from unknown to successful. That it's it's really hard. So, you know, I was a book writer, and that period right before publication was what some friends of mine and I, all all of us were book writers. What we called the lull before the lull. <laughs> it was very quiet before the book came out, and it was very quiet after the book came out. You know, there something like 250,000 books published every year and you just hope against hope that yours will get some kind of attention. So with Freakonomics, it was a very happy set of events and coincidences that led to it becoming probably much bigger than it deserved to become. I was working on a book that was kind of related. It was about what we now mostly know of as behavioral economics or behavioral finance. It was going to be called something like money makes me happy, parenthesis, except when it doesn't. And so for several years, I've been reporting on and starting to write about um, the kind of interface between economics and psychology and other things, theology. And, and I was a few chapters into that book when I, was, when I met Steve Levitt, an economist at the University of Chicago, whose research had nothing to do with money, nothing to do with anything I was working on. But he was so interesting and his research was so unique and fascinating that I wrote an article about him first in the New York Times Magazine and then we were kind of persuaded by outside people to to think about collaborating together, which we did on a book. Neither of us planned a collaboration like that. We had a great time working on the book. We thought it would sell, you know, a handful of copies. It sold more. And then we um, just kind of kept taking advantage of our advantage, I guess you'd say. It's interesting that you mentioned also behavioral economics. You've taken the algebra mm -hmm. out of the economics, you've brought it down to human behavior, and that's really bumping up then against behavioral economics. Yeah, yeah no, I, I would agree. I mean... Um, I think the the easier argument to make is why isn't all economics behavioral economics? But the fact is, is that it wasn't. The fact is, is that the dominant economic strain of most of the 20th century was a kind of formalist, mathematical, macroeconomics that was very useful if you were a mathematical, formal, macroeconomist. <laughs> For the rest of us, its value is questionable because it wasn't very good at predicting. It wasn't even very good at describing, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Um, it was good at theorizing. It was good at uh, job making. It was good at rent seeking, which is a, you know, a, a practice that most economists deride. But, you know, there was a lot of practice of economics that didn't really, I was going to say trickle down. I don't mean that in the trickle down economics it, it, it sense. It just didn't really benefit a lot of people. I sometimes think about the, the economics revolution, if you want to call it that, similar to the psychological revolution, which is that if you go back 120, 30, 40 years, 
psychology was a kind of abstract, or maybe not abstract, but a kind of obscure, academic, and very insular pursuit. And then over many years, uh, a lot of people, inside and out, began to examine and explore and popularize to an extent that maybe some people would say it got too popular. Maybe now people are too easy, too quick to reach for what little they know about psychology to explain other people's behavior. Anyway, psychology did undergo that transformation. I would argue that economics is now kind of in the not so much early days anymore, but middle days of becoming made, being made accessible to more people. And I think for the most part, that's a really good thing. And, and if we've played some part in that with Freakonomics and if behaviorally economics generally has played some part in that, I think it's for the good. Adam Smith, I mean, you read Adam Smith, if someone didn't tell you that this is the quote founder of economics, you'd say, oh, what a wonderfully interesting, thoughtful, and really humane moral philosopher. An enlightenment thinker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's exactly what he was. I'm, but if you look at his description of economics and economic activity, what was really useful about it was, A, it was holistic. It really understood that people, when they confront a change or an opportunity, it changes their behavior, right? So that's fundamental economics and fundamental psychology, by the way, and fundamental religion, et cetera, et cetera. But he was also writing in a time of great uh, technological change. And so I find that that kind of, you need a more holistic behavioral approach. I shouldn't say you need it. There is a place in the world for technical practitioners, whether it's economics or obviously engineering and all, all these different um, realms. There's a great need for that. I don't mean to belittle that. I don't mean to belittle expertise. But for what I do, which is I'm a writer, for me to make those ideas and theories useful. It needed more blood in it. It needed more humanity. And it, it was there in Smith years and years ago. And now people like Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky and Richard Thaler have helped uh, bring it back. Our podcast is a way of bringing in more of the blood and more of the humanity. I mean, the podcast I began kind of, not by accident, it was on purpose, but it was just as a lark. I was just a little bored. Uh, Levitt and I had just finished our second book and... Even though we have a very nice collaboration, he's in Chicago, I'm in New York, so it's not exactly collaborative. I was going to ask, how, how do you divide the labor? Yeah. Is it um, words and music, or are you kind of overlapping? Mm, I wish it were that simple. Although I found, you know, even mostly when there are words and music collaborations, they're not usually that Well, I get, the, the Gershwins were, Jagger, Richard were not. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say we're a little bit more... Just because I prefer the Rolling Stones to anybody. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, sometimes Levitt would have an idea for a story and I would do some research. Sometimes Levitt would be doing a bunch of uh, very, you know, empirical academic research and I would find a way to turn it into a story. But there was kind of every version there. Um, but that said, and we got together a lot, but mostly we were we were separate. Um, so the podcast grew out of us. We just finished our second book. I'd been locked into my writing studio for a year and a half or so and I was looking to do um, something that was a little bit more collaborative, a little bit more out in the world and plus which I love interviewing people. It's one of my favorite parts of writing but when you're writing print journalism the vast majority of your interview doesn't get used and also as much as I love print, still love print, an audio interview or audio generally is three-dimensional in a way or at least different dimensionally than just writing. So like one of the things I, I love about the podcast is if I interview someone, the listener is hearing A, more of them than if I were just writing a written piece. B, they're hearing it in context. So it's not just me, the writer, 
framing their argument and then dropping in one quote where I think it will make it or me or the issue work exactly the way I want it to. In other words, it's a little bit more complete journalism in a form. And C, this is my favorite part, this is where the dimensionality comes in. You, you know that person better when you hear them talking than when you just see them in, in print. So it's kind of like the difference between you know, hearing a piece of music and reading, reading the sheet music. It's a different dimensionality. And so that was what attracted me to doing a podcast originally. What I now like about it is that it's constant and current. So a book is this big, loose, baggy monster. I think that was Henry James calling them. Maybe, well, at least his books were loose, baggy <laughs> monsters. But uh, a book is something that you live with for three years and it never leaves you. And the podcast is something, it's a little daunting to try to put it out as constantly as we do, but I love the, the currency of it. And I love that when the world changes that we can kind of change with it. And so it's just been become a medium that I love because we can keep up in with, you know, the world of economics pretty much touches everything. So you're saying out loud something I so often think when I'm reading interviews there, which is why don't they just print the Q&A? What's the answer, do you think? I sometimes fear that the journalists feel they would be somehow putting themselves out of business if they didn't add their value. I don't think that's true. And where you do get the Q&A form, like in uh, John John Brockman's Edge podcasts and... uh, quite often in uh, Der Spiegel. It's fantastic. You're absolutely right. I mean, who wants to read a long profile with the occasional quote dropped in? Well, I would defend... I mean, look, there have been some amazing profile writers, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot to add. I'm not... I'm Personally, I love the profile... Like, So here's a good... Here's a hybrid that I really like. I love the uh, FT lunch conversation. The reason I like them is the writer works well to shape the context, but then you really hear from the interviewee, but... Very importantly, you hear the answer, you hear the question that they're answering. And that's really important. So much journalism that we all consume every day in the regular news cycle, this is one reason I don't love the regular news cycle, is essentially a whittled down, manicured shard of what a person's position was, surrounded by what the writer or the publication wants you to think about that position way too much journalism, even in the best newspapers and so on, is now about telling us how we should think about something as opposed to telling us things we didn't know and letting us, you know, actually have thoughts. Mm. And so that's a frustration. But I mean, I don't mean to say that there isn't a huge role for writing and descriptive nonfiction, but especially when you're interviewing someone who's got a lot to say, yeah, I like to turn on the microphone and I spend many hours and days ahead of time really trying to understand their work, trying to formulate questions that will, you know, get a, a worthwhile response and then let them, you know, let them have the mic. Now, that's, I think, a very good argument for what podcasts do well. What's kind of amazing to me is that they're now having such a, like, even, like, even like a second coming. When I think back to 2005, around the time your first book was coming out, I was working on the Economist website, pushing out a few podcasts. You you make a little bit of a ripple in iTunes, but it didn't go very far. Right. And so it felt like this was something that was running out of gas. And now it's 13. booming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Is, is that sh- shifting yeah. things, shifting no, technology? I, I think about this a lot. Well, first of all, I think like anything in life, it's, a few, it's at least a few things. It's oh. hard to pinpoint it. I do think that what we now call the serial phenomenon, you know, serial is one podcast that really was, was a phenomenon and it turned a lot of people on 
it may be partly a result of a news environment that continues to be fractured and fractious. And people are interested in hearing more robust coverage and discussion about ideas. Also, I think this is hugely important. Apple, primarily, and some others, basically built a massive distribution network that anyone in the world can use essentially for free. I mean, you cannot overestimate the value of that. I mean, just think about like back to the railroads as a distribution method for physical goods. Think about the, you know, I used to work at the New York Times. If I wanted to publish an article, first of all, I had a layers of um, editors and publishers who had to approve and, uh, you know, have a say in what I did, which can be good, can be bad. But then there were all these, uh, there were all the layers of technical stuff that needed to happen. And then the text needed to be sent digitally at this point to a printing press where they had to buy newsprint on these gigantic rolls from Canada, from companies that they own. So the New York Times, in order to distribute something that I wanted to write, had to buy the factory and the forest that were making the newsprint. Then after they print it, they had to put it on their trucks, which by the way, they also owned. So the, the New York Times has to own people like me and trucks and forests and printing press, and then they bring it to your door. iTunes, Apple, they basically disappeared that entire machinery and all the expense and time associated with it. So now you and I can sit here with a microphone that costs whatever. Basically the costs of this are close to zero. What we do with Freakonomics Radio, it's a little bit more involved. We interview multiple people. We have a bunch of producers. We edit. There's mixing. There's music. Da, da, da. But it's still relatively a drop in the bucket. And then our distribution is instant and global and free. And just about everybody in the world now has a computer in their pocket in the form of a smartphone that they can hear whatever we say instantly and free. So that, I think, is really... So we can talk all we want about serial and about, you know, long-form journalism, et cetera, et cetera, but let's not ignore the actual economics and the distributional, you know, gravity of all that. So I think that's a huge, huge piece of... Plus which, in the old days, meaning 10 years ago, if I were a comic, you know, who wasn't Jerry Seinfeld, or if I were an activist who wasn't Bill McKibben, or if I were anybody who wasn't somebody... I didn't have a voice. I didn't have a platform. I didn't have a way to really get my distribution, my voice out. Podcasting, you know, now there's something like 350,000 podcasts. So I think that one reason there's this huge passion to produce is because you have a chance. Anybody has a chance to be heard. So granted, it's always going to be one of these long tail things. It's probably the top one or 200 that are heard by a lot. Still, the fact that people who didn't have a big voice before can have any voice and it can be access accessed by anyone in the world is remarkable. And you're right up there at the top of the power curve, I think. you're Like I said, lucky. Eight lucky million good. downloads. Why the, why the branding Free Comics Radio? Is that to make it like friendly to more people? No, that was, honestly, that was simply to distinguish it from Freakonomics mm -hmm. because I wasn't, first of all, when I started the podcast, which I wanted to call Freakonomics Radio, my partner, Steve Levitt. So he said, you know, if you need me to be on the show once in a while, that's fine. I'll do it. But you know, this is your thing. And we have that kind of nice relationship with all Freakonomics. So it is, quote, a brand sort of, and mm -hmm. we both kind of use it a little bit for different things. Levitt's done some things that I haven't participated in. He's done, you know, a, a text, an econ textbook that had some Freakonomics stuff in it. And he's done some consulting that originally kind of had a Freakonomics component to it. And basically what happens in any case like that, one of us will ask the other, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this thing. 
do you want to do it? And it's either yes or no. Or And if it's no, then it's like, but, you know, have a blast. So Freakonomics Radio wanted to set apart as not being the books. Also, I always loved radio per se. I mean, even though it was a podcast, my, my dream was for it to be eventually on the radio. I was one of those kids who grew up in the middle of nowhere before the internet with one newspaper that was delivered, you know, often not immediately. So I loved the immediacy of radio. I liked hearing people from other places. And I like the intimacy of it. I think that's another reason that podcasts have a make a connection. Reading is intimate, but with a podcast, you are literally inviting someone else into your ears, into your head. You feel you know them and that maybe they know you a little bit. So I, I really like um, all, all those connections that the word radio connotes. What's the question you ask yourself when you're wondering whether a particular topic is going to make a good episode of Free Economics Radio. Well, I think about this a lot because there are two regrets. Saying no to something that you later wish you'd said yes to, and then obviously wishing you'd said no to something that you said yes to. I experienced the latter more often. It's the one I remember when I was working at the the New York Times as I was my day job was an editor so I would write for the magazine as time allowed which was usually only one or two big pieces a year because they're you know a magazine piece was pretty extensive and I remember then always looking at the op-ed the opinion writers or the op-ed columnists sorry the op-ed columnists who were writing like twice a week and you know these are the some of the biggest names in journalism and I was nothing but in awe of all of them and then the more I was there the longer I was there and the more I began to really read their columns, I was like, oh, you know, that one was an A minus, but that was a C plus. And I realized that, man, if you have to write a column twice a week for a global audience that everybody's watching, that is tough to come up with those, to come up with good ideas, to report, to execute, to write it well. And so I kind of vowed then I never wanted to be in, put myself as a writer in a situation where I had to put out something that I didn't think was good or ready. Right now, I'm kind of flirting with that feeling again because we're a weekly podcast now. And even though we do put out some repeats, we still generate roughly 40 new ones a year. And so that needs a lot of ideas. So basically, the most valuable thing for me is not the research and the reporting and the interviewing and the scripting and the tracking the narrative, but it's, a, it's the finding an idea that has the depth or the fun and the data to be worth investing all that other stuff, the reporting and so on. I'm a big believer that you have to really trust yourself. You know, a lot of times I'll have a thought and someone else on the team may say, well, that's going to piss people off or won't people think that's not serious enough or won't people think that's too serious? And I don't, if you're, I mean, I basically am just still a writer in a different format. I think as a writer, you have to learn to trust your instincts. And of course, there will be things that are less good than others. And of course, there will be things that are less popular, which I don't care so much about. And of course, there will be things that piss people off, which I don't care so much about either. I, when I was a young writer, I remember a couple projects I started on. I remember a play I was writing, and I was really into this play. And I made the mistake of telling over dinner this friend of mine who was a, an elder statesman in the field. And he just said, that sounds like the stupidest idea for a play I've ever heard. And now I look back and I think, you know, screw that. 
either he was having a bad day or or even if it, it was a stupid idea, I was I had a lot in me going for it. But I learned from that. I learned that if you have something that you feel you've got something to say and you know how to say it well and you're going to work really hard on it, then don't be dissuaded. So really, my criteria for picking what I feel will be a successful episode are all, you know, lay right within my my own decision chain, which is, is it interesting? Is it true? Is, and is it something that I can have fun doing? That's a a big thing because I need to you know because even though the episodes come out frequently every week for me I'm living with that any given one episode for six eight ten twelve weeks it's a long process so it's got to be a topic that I'm going to continue to want to learn about read about and so on instead of that horrible long answer I could have just said if I'm interested in it Mm -hmm. then I'm going to do it so Stephen Dubner you're a writer and a broadcaster that we admire who are the writers and broadcasters that you admire who's really good and also undervalued at the moment. Chekhov, I think is undervalued, really good. You want living? You know, I'll tell you, um, I mean, this is um, such a uh, predictable answer, but here's um, a writer who has since started doing what I'm now doing, who I think has done an amazing job, is Malcolm Gladwell. So Malcolm's a really good writer. He's obviously very popular. It's very fashionable to trash Malcolm if you're in academia or in one of the fields that he's written about, which are many. He's written about many fields and say that, well, he's a popularizer and he doesn't really get it all right, da da da. Whatever. Those are debates, take them on a case by case basis. He found, kind of like I found, that writing books it can be a monster, that there's an upside to the immediacy. So he's now been making this podcast. What's impressive to me about it is. He's really, really, really good at that, too. He's a good interviewer, he's a great storyteller, and he's a good talker. So basically, for the past two years, he's put out a series of podcasts instead of writing a book. But that's the effort it takes. And that's where podcasting, there's a huge variance in it. It's very easy to just turn on the microphone and have three people sit around with beers and chat about football. And that's fine, and that's that can be great if that's what you're after. But for the kind of stuff that's produced and thoughtful and written and so on, that's that's never going to be fair. Well, Stephen Dubner, thank you very much for allowing me to come and sit around with a microphone. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. And if you ever dare, dare think about stopping doing the browser... Don't, <laughs> because it is uh, wonderful and valuable, and uh, we'll have to um, come hurt you if you decide to uh, try to stop. You're excessively kind, and that's <laughs> a risk I wouldn't want to run. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to the browser, which you can do for $34 a year by going to thebrowser.com. The browser recommends the best five or six pieces of writing worth reading each day. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. And In case you haven't been there yet, but I bet you have, go to Freakonomics.com and what you find there will change the way that you see the world. Stephen, thank you. Thank you, Robert.